Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Yes, indeed, it is Sunday. Do not adjust your set. You are listening to Mooney Goes Wild. For the next few weeks, at any rate, you'll be able to hear us on Sunday from 7 to 8 p.m. and then again on Mondays from 10 to 11 p.m. I want to wish each and every one of you listening right now a very happy, prosperous and peaceful new year. I want to extend that to our panel. Niall Hatch, happy new year. And a very happy new year to you as well, Derek. I hope you had a great Christmas and you're ready to go for another year of Mooney Goes Wild. Absolutely. Now, winter. That's what we're in now. Not that you'd know it because it's been sort of mild. Winter is the time of year when Ireland receives hundreds of thousands of avian visitors. Many of these birds are regular migrants to our shores from breeding grounds much further north. What are they? Why are they coming here? What's so special about Ireland? Niall, set the scene. Well, of course, we here in Ireland, we often think about birds heading south for the winter. Mm -hmm. So you think about the swallows and the cuckoos going to sub-Saharan Africa. And that's what we think of when we think of migration. But in fact, we get far more migrants coming to us in the winter months here in Ireland because we are the further south for many of those birds (laughs) that breed in the Arctic. So there's many species that breed in in the far northern regions of this world. They could be in North America, places like Canada, Greenland, across through Iceland, into Scandinavia and through Siberia. And in the summer, it's wonderful for them to breed there because there's 24 hours of daylight, there's lots of food, very few predators up there but at this time of year it's 24 hours of darkness There's no and it's very very cold, absolutely so what they do is they move further south and they come to us here in Ireland and probably the finest exponents of that would be the waders this wonderful group of birds, they generally have long legs and long beaks and they're mostly associated with wetland habitats which we fortunately have an abundance of here in Ireland so these birds come here for the winter months basically to refuel and to rest up and then head back to the Arctic again for their breeding season, so most of them are here just as temporary visitors. We do have some waders that breed here in Ireland as well, but the vast majority that flock to our estuaries and our mudflats and our beaches throughout the course of the winter, they're birds that have come from further north. So they're not coming here looking for mates and to breed like the swallow, for example, that comes from Africa to breed here in Ireland, build its nest and rear its young, and then off they go back, same with the cuckoo, cuckoo. But that's not the case here for the majority of them. That's exactly right. So for those birds, we are their Africa. We are as far south as they would get. And this is balmy and tropical as far as they're concerned. So we think of Ireland as being very very cold, dreary place in the winter. In fact, given our latitude and our location in Europe, we're actually pretty warm in the winter months. And this has been an unseasonably mild winter. Well, can I tell you that on New Year's Eve, just last week, Niall, I saw a bumblebee. That's very unusual for, for late December, certainly. And I, I could only put it down to being a, a pretty warm day. I mean, I think it New Year's Eve was 14, 14 degrees, degrees or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It must have been woken up. It was in hibernation. Probably a queen had woken up because of the sun. Of course, that, that uh, insect may be doomed now because if it didn't get back into hibernation mm. in time, if the weather drops or the temperatures drop at night, it won't survive. It obviously had been fooled into thinking it was springtime. Um, so it's been a particularly mild winter. But usually in December and in January, it's very cold here in Ireland, but much colder in other parts of Europe. So we tend to get a lot warmer than most other places. That's mainly because of the Gulf Stream coming up from the Gulf of Mexico, that sea current that keeps us warmer than we should be. I never forget that we're on the same latitude as Hokkaido in northern Japan, which is freezing cold, well below freezing in the winter. We're like parts of Canada we should be if it wasn't for this Gulf Stream. So that does a lot for us and that's why these wading birds come here because they're guaranteed access round the clock to unfrozen bodies of water and that's what they need because most of their lives revolve around wetlands. They're here to feed in the mud and in the, in the estuaries where they probe down using those long beaks to find little invertebrates, little creepy crawlies that they can feed on and that's the secret of their success. They'll feed on those and then head back north in the springtime. Now I said we get hundreds of thousands. Am I exaggerating? No you're not. That's exactly right. We get hundreds of thousands of these birds of over 30 different species come to us here in Ireland. So we are the world capital of waders almost. We have The waders we get here and the, the, the diversity of them is the envy of many other countries in the world. I know lots of bird watchers who really look to us here in Ireland and think how lucky we are to have so many of these birds. Because if you look at where we are on a map it makes sense. We're the first port of call for birds that have crossed the Atlantic. Maybe have come from Greenland or from northern Canada mm. and they, they arrive here. They, the conditions meet their liking. They don't have to move any further. Why would they fly any further than they absolutely have to? We're also the final port of call for birds that have maybe come from Siberia or coming down from Scandinavia. We're the last 
last stop shop. After that, you have open ocean, and they're not going to go out there too, so it's the last chance they have. So it's a real melting pot. All these different birds from all around the Northern Hemisphere meet here in the winter, and it's the only time they ever meet each other, and then they'll fly back to their breeding grounds that are thousands of kilometres apart. It really blows my mind. All right, let's say hello to the panel, and we start by going to Malahide in North County, Dublin, and say good evening to Dr Richard Collins, and Happy New Year, Richard. Hello, Derek. Hello, everybody on the panel. In Cork, we have Jim Wilson. He's in Cove. Hello, Jim, and Happy New Year to you. And many happy returns to you, Derek. We're going next to Wicklow. Eric Dempsey. Eric. Hello, Derek, and a Happy New Year to you and all the gang there. And now we go to Dublin 15, and we've got Terry Flanagan. Terry. Well, Happy New Year. I hope you had a great Christmas, Derek. I did indeed, Terry. Thank you very much indeed for asking. But let's get back to the waders, as that's what tonight's programme is all about. So how far do these birds actually travel? Can you tell me now which bird travels the farthest? Is it the furthest or the farthest? You could say it either way, but we do know what it is, certainly among the, the wader community at least. The record now we know is held by a female bar-tailed godwit, a species you also get in Ireland, but this is particularly the population that breeds in Alaska, spends the winter in New Zealand. There's no land between those two points, so that makes a non-stop flight. It can last for up to 12 days and it's a distance of over 14,000 kilometres. Wow. Non-stop. Imagine that. It really takes a, it takes a toll on them. They lose a massive amount of their body weight. But it just shows what these birds can endure, much more than we thought they did. Now, I know we get them here, as you said. We also get the black-tailed godwit here. Jim has them in Cork Harbour. Yes, the black-tailed godwit, often found alongside the bar-tailed godwit here in Ireland. The black-tailed godwits we get almost exclusively come to us from Iceland. There's a particular race or subspecies that breeds in Iceland, winters in Ireland. And to get here, they would travel between one and a half to 2,000 kilometres, depending exactly on when they're breeding and wintering. And again, they do that non-stop too. That's pretty impressive in its own right. <laughs> it certainly is. Jim, what do you think of that? That's how far your black-tailed godwits have travelled. Tell me about the waders in Cork Harbour, please. <laughs> Thank you very much, Derek. Yeah, I mean, we're here at Cork Harbour, one of the biggest natural harbours in the world. Um, and, and the amount of estuary we have is incredible. Uh, and at this time of year, there's lots and lots and lots of waders taking advantage of the food to be found in the mud that you can see at low tide. So like today now the tide is rising, so a lot of the birds are being lifted off the mud eventually. So twice a day they can't access the food and that's when they rest and uh, preen and make sure all the feathers are, are in, in good fettle. And as soon as the tide recedes again, they're back out onto the mud uh, searching for that food. And some people, especially in the past, uh, would have said like, oh sure, th there's plenty of mud for them. We, we can, we can, well, they used to use the word or they do use the word reclaim land, which I think is a total misnomer because you're not taking back land that was originally land, you're creating land from the estuary, from the sea. And so when we did this on, on a very large scale, we actually took out large areas of these estuaries. And from my studies of, of the birds in Cork Harbour, and I'm sure it's the same for the other members of the panel around the country, you discovered that these birds use different parts of these estuaries at different times of the year and at different times of the day in different weather. I mean, when it's blowing a howling gale and you've got big long legs like a curlew or a black-tailed godwit, you're going to be blown off that, uh, you know, if the winds get too strong. So you will go to a sheltered mudflat. And I, I always try and explain it to politicians in particular when they're trying to grasp the, why we're getting so excited and so upset over areas of wetland or our, our estuary being, being um, filled in for development uh, or things like that or roadways. And, and the thing is, it's like if an alien came down to your house and knew nothing about how we lived and, and, and how we went about our daily lives. And they came into your house and they decided they're setting up shop in the bathroom. Or they're setting up shop in the kitchen and you're not allowed there anymore. You could say, but I need, I need those rooms. It, we can't live if we don't have the bathroom. We can't live if we don't have the kitchen. And to the alien, all the rooms look the same. So they'll say, but you've plenty of other rooms. Yeah, but I can't go to the toilet in the front room or I can't cook the dinner in the shed. So if you, if you can get an idea of that when you look at an estuary, no matter how big it is in, in, on the west coast, the south, east, north, they're like all different rooms of the one house. And we must ensure that when these hundreds and thousands of waders come to us every winter, that all the rooms are available so that they can survive another winter and head back north to breed. 
And of course, Jim, when we're looking at mudflats and estuaries, we're only seeing the surface. But what's far more important to those birds is what lies below the surface, because they're probing with their bills down into the substrate to try and find worms and crustaceans and any other creepy crawlies or invertebrates they can find down there. And that's the key to their survival, because what they do here in Ireland over the course of the winter, that affects and really dictates the whole breeding success in the summer to come, because they then return to the Arctic breeding grounds where most of them come from, and then how they fed in Ireland will determine how productive they are, how many eggs they'll lay, how many of their chicks may survive. And of course, when they're here and they get disturbed as well, if they're chased by dogs or disturbed by people or by traffic or whatever it may be, they're burning up those energy reserves, that hard-won, hard-fought energy, and that can affect their survival as well. So I often think that it's, it's, it's strange when you see them on the mudflats, people think, oh, it's just it's a wasteland or it's just dirt, it doesn't matter. For those birds, that is like the Amazon rainforest. It's teeming with life, but we can't tell that just by looking at the surface. And when people look at birds feeding on a mudflat, it's also important to, to remember that each of these different species have a different length beak. So like a, a curlew has a very long down curved beak and it allows it to probe really deeply into the mud. A red shank has a shorter beak, so that's going, you know, into medium depth of the mud. And birds like Dunlin or even, you know, Lapwing, they've really short beaks, so they're feeding at the top strata. So it means that all of these birds are able to avail of a rich source of food without directly competing with each other. So a mudflat is like an enormous big broth of, of food. And we always associate, you know, waders with, uh, you know, estuaries and with mudflats. But of course, you go uh, out anywhere across the country, you will have curlews in the fields, you will have lapwings and golden plovers. So, like, in many ways, you know, grasslands, wetlands, they provide a rich source of food. So when, when you see a, a curlew in your field, it's actually probing deep into the grass, looking for earthworms as opposed to lugworms uh, on a mudflat. So, you know, they're very, very um, adaptable to finding food once once the surface is soft and they can probe into that mud. They have an extraordinary technology developed. Uh, the nearest uh, equivalent to the curlew that I can remember is the elephant. The elephant has an elongated nose, a trunk, and it's a kind of a hand. Well, the curlew's bill is also, and a wader's bill generally is a kind of a hand. It can sense things with the tip of it. And the female has a longer bill than the male in the case of the curlew, so that the two feed at different depths, so they don't take the bit out of each other's mouth. But there's, it's even more subtle because... Consider, if you're trying to find something in the mud, you can stick down your bill, which is sensitive. If there's a lugworm or something moving around, you'll detect its vibrations. Now, you'll swing the tip of the bill around and take up the lugworm and eat it. But suppose you're looking for something that isn't moving, not generating any vibrations. How do you detect that? It's not just random probing. A famous Dutch um, ornithologist named Piersma did some research on this. And he discovered that what happens is that the, the waiter puts its bill down and it generates a pressure wave in the water. The, the place down there is moist. And that little pressure wave goes along until it meets an obstacle, an obstacle like a mollusk or something like that. And it stops there. So the, the waiter can detect this change in the pressure of the water. And that, he says, is how they find that kind of food. It is an extraordinarily complex and subtle adaptation. And it really is amazing, isn't it, Richard, just how well adapted they are to that, because they're finding all of this food blind, at least most waders are. But what I find probably most interesting about them is when you see all the different species, they can live side by side because they have different lengths of legs and different bill lengths, which means that they feed on subtly different organisms. So the birds like the plovers, they tend to have very short beaks and they feed on things that are on the surface. Then you have a bird like a dunlin, a small wader with a, a long and well, a slightly longer and more curved bill. They'll probe below the surface level and they'll 
you'll also get things that are on the surface. Then you have a bird like a red shank, one of the easier waders to identify because of the, the red legs for which they're named. They have a longer beak again and longer legs, so they'll go into deeper water. Then you have a bird like a green shank, it's longer legged and longer beaked again. Then the godwits, they go even further in that direction. Then the curlews again. So everyone is subtly different. And that's one of the things that I always try to tell to beginning bird watchers who maybe have got their first field guide to the birds of Ireland because they're coming through those pages and they will see the blue tits and the great tits and all these birds they recognise from their gardens. They'll see colourful birds like kingfishers, easy to identify. But then they get to the pages of the wading birds and often people just skip through those. They think, oh, these are too difficult. These are only for experts. I could never identify these. But the really the key is realising the differences between the birds, what that tells us about their ecology. And I always recommend trying to get to know the most common, most distinctive ones first so then you have some point of comparison for the birds that are slightly more different. So the red shank again would be a good example. Bright red legs. There aren't many other waders, really any common wader that has that. Probably the best one to start with though would be the oyster catcher, one of my favourite waders because it isn't brown or grey like most of the others. It's strikingly black and white with a lovely red beak and pinkish legs. So it's very distinctive. So when people tell me they could never identify a wader, I always say, well, start with an oyster catcher. You can definitely identify those. And curlews are easy enough too with the long curved beak. And before you know it, you're flying. You're then comparing other birds to those. And that's the way to learn your waders. One one interesting thing when you mentioned the oyster catcher there is a, a thing that I think the Dutch uh, ornithologists also did a lot of work on is a, a fascinating concept called handling time. And basically they discovered that the different birds on the mud flat, some of them were eating small little um, bivalves, small little shellfish, but they only ate ones of a particular size. They didn't eat very, very small ones or they didn't eat very, very big ones. Do you know what I mean? They, they just ate ones in a certain size range. And what they, what they discovered was a thing called handling time. And what it was is how long does it take me to get that food into my stomach? And if the handling time gets too long, too much energy is being expended, not worth the effort. Too small, I got to spend a whole pile of time picking up these small little, these small little shellfish. So they eventually find the right size uh, shellfish for them. And with the oyster catcher, they also found pulling up worms, like Richard mentioned, the lugworms, that the handling time is when a bird called a black-headed gull comes along and just casually stands close to the oyster catcher and it waits for it to pull up a worm that is just too big or proving too difficult and they fly in and they grab and steal the worm away. So the black-headed gull has learned, I, I don't need to go hunting for these worms, I can let an oyster catcher, probably a young bird, who's having trouble getting that worm into its stomach fast enough before something else catches it or robs it and I'll come along and I'll grab it off it. So when, when, when you realise this sort of detail, you, you, you really have to stand in awe at the way the whole ecosystem of the mudflat works. And as you've been already re referring to, it, that the fact that everything locks in together like a jigsaw and, and they all move as one and nobody upsets anybody else overall. And they all manage to eke out a, a living and get three meals a day out of it. It's, it's fantastic. Eric. There's one more fascinating uh, detail about oyster catchers that I love is that they have a very long orange beak. And if you're going to capture and break into a mollusk, there's two ways of doing it. The first one is you get along the edge and you prise it open. So you're a prizer. The other way of doing it is to, to smash it open with, uh, with the tip of your beak. And if you look at oyster catchers, you will see some of them have really fine tips to their beaks. So, so they're prizers. But the ones that use their beak to smash open the shell, they have a blunt tip to the beak because the tip of the beak keeps getting broken. They're smashers. And apparently, if your parents are smashers, you will grow to be a smasher. And if your parents are prizers, you will grow to be a prizer. But I often do wonder, and I've said it so many times, I wonder what happens if your mother's a smasher and your father's a prizer. Uh, are these the ones that are out feeding in the football pitches looking for earthworms because they're not quite sure how to crack open a shell? They are very confused oyster catchers out there. 
That's very true, Eric. Yes, sometimes waders can be seen in, in habitats that you wouldn't expect. So the oyster catchers and curlews as well, sometimes being on playing fields. That's a very good example of that. Perhaps my favourite example, though, and one, one of my favourite waders of all time, is the one that hasn't read the rule book. That's the woodcock, the wading bird that lives in woodlands and lives in leaf litter and it's highly camouflaged. It seems to have evolved a life away from the water. It's not interested in mudflats or in estuaries or rivers or anything like that, yet it's still a member of that wading group. And if you saw one and looked at it, you realise, yes, that's a wader. It has this long beak for probing in the soil. It's just, it's switched to living, I suppose, almost like a kiwi would in New Zealand or something like that, a totally different type of lifestyle. Uh, and that's, yeah, I, I find that really fascinating how that adaptation is carried over to that different type of habitat. And it's nocturnal, don't forget. It's a nocturnal wader. That, that It's a bird that only comes out at night time. And I was very lucky that I had one over the house just before Christmas flying over from the woodlands beside our house here in Newcastle and Wicklow. And it was heading off out into the fields. And that's what they do. They, they will go off out into the wet fields and probe in the wet fields, just like a wader. But they come back and spend the day perfectly camouflaged in the leaf litter of woodland. So not only are they a woodland bird, but they are a nocturnal woodland wader. And that is a a bit insane, but obviously very successful. It works for them and whatever works, they keep doing, I suppose. Let's say hello again to Terry Flanagan. Now, Terry spent the morning out at the Bull Island in Dublin. Terry, what was it like out there? Well, Derek, I can tell you this. There's no place like the Bull Island. Now, you say it's an island. Well, is it an island? Because there are two bridges connecting it. There's the old wooden bridge that was built, I think, around the 1800s. And as far as I know, this is Dublin's only wooden bridge. Now, I stand to be corrected on that. The bridge itself, it connects Dollymount to the Bull Island. And it was built to bring workers over to build the North Bull Wall. The Great South Wall was built in the early 1700s. And it was built to try and stop or prevent sand blocking the entrance to Dublin Port. Now, it wasn't very successful, and Captain Bly, he of the Mutiny on the Bounty, he was consulted in 1800, and he recommended a second wall be built, and that second wall was the North Bull Wall, and it was built in the 1820s. And when it was completed, the retreating tide scoured out the central channel. And here's the really interesting bit. All the sand was washed back inshore and that's what created Bull Island. Now, people find this hard to believe, but the Bull Island is composed entirely of sand and it's actually growing. It's growing out towards the sea. It's now over five kilometres long. It's about 800 metres or so wide. And there are two golf courses on it and there's also the Interpretive Centre with Pat Corrigan, a fantastic resource for people. Now, as you said, I was out there earlier on and uh, it depends on what time you go what you're going to see. So when I was there, it was actually high tide and there was very, very little activity. So I waited there for an hour or two. And what happens as the water goes out, the birds start to reappear. And the birds that appear first tend to be the Brent geese. And you can see them flying over in flocks, calling as they fly over. Beautiful bird. They're Ireland's smallest goose. And they arrive here in October. And one of the most important winter places in the world is here in Dublin Bay. And they feed here on eelgrass. And then what you'll also see there are the shell duck. The shell duck are swimming around. They're just waiting for the tide to go out. And what happens if you're willing to wait there for an hour or so, what you'll actually see is these small little islands appearing. And then the Brent geese, they land on these islands. Now, when they land first, you'll notice, well, I always notice they seem to be preening themselves, just getting ready for when the food is really there. And like was mentioned earlier on, it depends on the bird, what they feed on. Evolution is all about adaptations. So if you think of the food that's present, because it's a massive resource, the, the mud flats for all the, the animals that are there, not just the birds. But if you think of the Brent goose, the Brent goose, that's a herbivore. So he feeds on the grasses and the algae. And then the birds, depending on the length of bill, they will feed on different things. Eric and, and Niall and Richard were mentioning there about the curlew feeding on the lugworm. Yes, because you can reach down to it. But right up at the top, probably the most important food resource is the hydrobia, these tiny snails. And you'll see that the shell duckies taken up thousands and thousands of these. That's what they feed on. Now, the bird that I like best, Niall was mentioning it there and so was Eric, is the oyster catcher. I'll tell you a story, Derek. When I was young, we used to go to Dollymount. We used to call it Dollymount. We didn't call it the Bull Island. And we used to go over that wooden bridge. And I remember my father was always showing me birds and he'd say this and that and the other. And then I said, oh, there's a magpie. Now, I was very young. And he said, no, that's not a magpie. I said, it is, the black and white one. And he said, no, that's not a magpie. Have a look at its feet. 
the red. Yeah, okay. Have a look at the bill. Yeah, now just remember that when you go home. So that was my first introduction to the oyster catcher. And to be honest, the oyster catcher is my favorite bird out there. He's big, he's noisy, he's long lived, and they very much live in tidal estuaries and rocky shores. And during the breeding season, however, they can be found much further inland and populations move along these kind of linear waterways like rivers and so on. And I know in some cases, particularly in Scotland, they've even been known to nest on rooftops. Now, again, why do we call it an oyster catcher? Because it doesn't eat oysters and it doesn't catch anything. I know in Ireland, in some places in Ireland, it's known as the mussel pickers and I think that's a much better name for it. In England, it's referred to as the sea pie. Uh, pie meaning as in black and white, like mag pie. Uh, to me, that's the, the nicest bird out there, but I think Dublin, especially Dublin Bay, when we think of it as a nature reserve, and that goes back, I think, to the 1930s or so, it became Ireland's first official bird sanctuary and in 1981, it was designated a biosphere reserve by UNESCO. And why was that? And it's because of the variety and numbers of birds that are present here. Now there's about 40,000 birds here in wintertime and they feed and the whole idea is so that they're in perfect condition to migrate again in the following spring. They need to build up these reserves because they can lose as much as 25% of their body fat in 18 hours. So people often say to me, oh we live in Dublin and you don't see much wildlife in Dublin especially in the wintertime. And I I said, that's totally untrue. So I said, in October, go up to the Phoenix Park, you don't have to get out of your car, and you can watch the deer rutting. And then as soon as that's over in November, December, go out to the Bull Island, park your car on the causeway. You don't even have to get out of your car. All you need is a pair of binoculars, open the window, you'll hear these fantastic sounds and see these fantastic birds. So you got from the very, very small to the very, very large, but you've got great variety and huge numbers of them. So if people in Dublin want to see wildlife, want to see waders, the place to be is on the North Bull Island. Well, you sold it to me. And not too far away from you, Richard, is the North Bull Island. But in Malahide, what's it like? Yes, we have lots of waders in Malahide. Yes, indeed, we have. The waders, it seems to me, are the most resourceful of birds. If you look at estuaries and wetlands, it breaks down into meat-eating birds and vegetarian birds. Now, the ducks, geese and swans are mostly vegetarians. The geese and the swans are. The ducks are a bit more adventurous. But on the wader side, they are animal feeders. They hunt. And as we know, the hunting animals are much more glamorous than dull grass-eating cows and things like that. We love tigers. We love lions and leopards and mustelids and things that chase and hunt and are extraordinarily gifted at hunting and so forth. Now, the waders have really spread out. The ducks, geese and swans all belong to one huge family, only one family. But look at all the different families of waders there are. We mentioned the woodcock. These are wading birds that have gone into the centre of woods to muck about in little pools of water and get invertebrates there. You have things that live along the shore like turnstones and purple sandpipers. We have ones that rival the thrushes, the plovers. The plovers have bills like thrushes and they outthrush the thrushes looking for worms and things on playing fields and the like. There you have an extraordinary variation in them. You have even the phalaropes who spend the winter out at sea. And when you look at them behaviourally, they are extraordinary as well. You've got the extreme feminists like the phalarope. The male does all the work, incubates the eggs and everything. The female, all she has to do is put the eggs in. And he is the most devoted father you could find. At the other end of the extreme, you have... Ruffs. And ruffs are totally promiscuous. They pay no attention to family values. They meet in dance halls called leks and they mate randomly and they go their separate ways. And then you have everything in between. Most of the waders we have are monogamous, long term, most of them. So you have this. And another thing with your Dawn Chorus hat on, waders sing some of them. Now that is extraordinary because birds in open areas use vision mm -hmm. to communicate plumage. They don't need to be singing and the song doesn't carry that well out there. 
but the waiters, you take things like the curlew. The most beautiful song in Ireland is probably the curlew, and things like the common sandpiper, beautiful singer, from which we get the name sandpiper indeed. So they even do that. And look at the migrations they do. Absolutely enormous migrations the waders do. They follow the light, and there are strange contradictions. In the case of the light, they ignore daylight. They feed when the tide is out, are backing off, and they rest and sleep when the tide is in. And yet they follow the light when migrating. It's, people used to think that uh, birds migrate for food. Yes, they do in a sense. But their trigger is probably the light. They like to chase the light. Yet they don't use the light. Isn't that very strange? When the tide is out, you will feed. When the tide is in, you will rest. And even in the middle of the night, you will go out and feed. They don't need much light to feed, although some research shows that, in fact, they're less efficient feeding in the dark than they are in the light. There's one one additional thing to that, of course, Richard, is that these birds not just follow the light south, but where they are breeding, it gets frozen over in the winter. So you cannot gain access to a wetland because it's you know frozen over. You cannot gain access to your mudflats because it's frozen over. So it's not just you know the light. It's also they're moving with the temperate zones where because Ireland is a damp, wet country, they have access to the food. And Indeed. you'll you'll see the big movements that take place. And I'm sure you remember the the winter 2009 2010. Hundreds of thousands of shorebirds waders, like birds like lapwings, died coming over from Europe into Ireland. They couldn't gain access to their feeding. The wetlands were frozen over, the fields were frozen over, and and these birds really, really struggled. So it's the fact that we are such a damp temperate, mild, wet country that keeps our grasslands, our wetlands, our estuaries unfrozen and gives them access to that food. Uh, you also mentioned, you know, the display flights and, and the, the songs. Perhaps one, one which really is a beautiful sound is the sound of a snipe. When they in the summer have a territory, they do something quite extraordinary. They, they of course, do, do a sort of a song, which is like that. But then they do a flight display and their outer tail feathers are stiff. And as they fall down through the air, it vibrates. So you'll hear this over the boglands and that is a real sound of an Irish bogland or should I say it was a real sound of an Irish bogland in summer because while we talk about waders it's also important to, to say that many of our breeding waders are in big, big trouble in Ireland at the moment. And I know Birdwatch Ireland are doing an awful lot of work, curlew surveys and other surveys like that. So when I meet people, say, on the Bull Island, and I explain how rare curlews are, and they look out and say, well, look, there's 400 of them there. Like, what are you talking about? There's thousands. They must be very common. Many of the waders that we have in Ireland in winter, of course, are not Irish birds. They, they don't carry Irish passports. So many of these birds this, that come in are, you know, thousands of birds from Northern Europe, from Iceland, from Greenland, from Siberia, from, you know, even from Scotland. Our Irish breeding wader population is in decline because of wetland drainage, the, the planting of conifer plantations, which allows predators to actually view over a bogland basically making the camouflage of these waders in summer ineffective. So our, our waders really are, you know, we, we adore them. We love them. And like, to me, the sound of a curlew, you know, that that's such a beautiful sound. And it was the sound of, of a wetland in, in summer. You know, we always talk about that harp ad, you know, Sally O'Brien and the way she might look at you, you know, and the cry of the curlew. That was a sound that obviously an emigrant off to the Middle East where you could fry an egg in the rocks if you had an egg was thinking about his home. And and the curlew, the sound of the curlew was the thing that sort of captured him. And I always think how sad it must be for emigrants to be living in the Middle East now never carrying the sound of a curlew with them because curlews and snipe and even woodcock, they, they are in 
big, big trouble. I'm sure Niall will know more about the facts and figures than I do, but it's something that we really do need to think about because you do get a false sense of security seeing all these thousands of waders on the Bull Island. So, well, there's nothing wrong here. But that is like not an Irish picture. They are an international picture. And even then, the numbers are declining because I know Birdwatch Ireland has been doing a lot of survey work on iWebs. And the, the, the populations of our, our waders are going down each year. You're absolutely right, Eric. Yes, the iWebs, the Irish Wetland Bird Survey, has been showing very worrying trends for our wintering waders. So we're seeing the, the numbers of wintering migrants to Ireland going down very markedly. There's probably half a million fewer birds than there were just a couple of decades ago visiting Ireland. And so the populations are going down. So even at places like Harpers Island in Cork or Bull Island in Dublin or Dundalk Bay in County Louth, you'll see huge concentrations of these birds. But the numbers aren't the same as they used to be. And the number of important sites for these have been declining as well. So that is worrying. So to take a bird like the the curlew, for example, as a breeding species here in Ireland, the population is maybe 100, 120 pairs at the moment. That's down from tens of thousands of pairs just a few decades ago. That's a bird that is headed for extinction here in Ireland unless something is being done. Now, things are being done, but let's hope it's not not too little too late. The the state really needs to step up to do more on that, in in my opinion. But also what we are seeing is we're seeing declines internationally. We know from other species of curlew around the world that are very close related to our curlew that they go from being super abundant to extinct, completely extinct almost overnight or in the space of just a few decades because of change in the landscape, because of disturbance and particularly because of habitat destruction and conversion. So forestry plantations or agricultural change in the areas that they would pass through or where they would feed. And we know that they just don't abide this type of change. So I'm very worried about the curlew. I think that the curlew within the next generation or two of a human generation, that is, they could actually become extinct. They could go the way of the dodo or the passenger pigeon of the great auk and that would be an absolute tragedy. And I think as well, sometimes when it comes to these breeding waders that we have in Ireland, we think of winter waders as being very much winter birds here in Ireland. But of course, we do have breeding populations of birds like redshank, dunlin, golden plover, lapwing, snipe, woodcock, curlew. And the thing is that they're sort of disappearing under the radar without people noticing they're vanishing. We're finding that there's, there's huge problems now with, with their breeding grounds. There's big problems with predators getting the final few. When we had big populations of these birds, predators couldn't really make much of an impact because they'd just be feeding on a few eggs or a few chicks. In the grand scheme of things, that wasn't having an effect. Enough were surviving to go on and replicate the species and reproduce. Now we're finding that most of the clutches of these birds are being destroyed. So the adults might be, might be surviving, but there, there, there's no productivity there. And what happens is over time, as those adults then disappear and they eventually die of old age or whatever, then the species vanishes. So our breeding waders are probably the most threatened group of birds that we have here in Ireland. And I wish there were birds that people knew more because they're absolutely stunning. Because when we think of waders, you know, we're talking about these birds that seem to us to be brown or grey, you know, beautiful in their own right. But a lot of people think that they're bird watchers birds. They're, they're not something that, that particularly exciting and they're going to capture people's imagination. If people could see what these birds look like in their breeding plumage or they could hear them when they're singing and displaying on the breeding grounds, they're among the most stunning and impressive birds on the planet. So the, the godwits, for example, so Jim, I know that you're a big fan particularly of the black-tailed godwits. When we see them here in, in, in Ireland in the winter, these Icelandic birds that come to us from, from Iceland, mostly we see them, they're, they're basically a brown-coloured, brownish-grey bird out in the mudflats. But in their breeding plumage up in the, uh, the Icelandic tundra, they are gleaming red. They're beautiful, stunning birds. The same goes for birds like Sanderling, a bird that you get on the little wader that you find on seashores beside the waves. To us, they look very pale, like very pale grey. In the breeding plumage, they're the house brick red. They're absolutely stunning. And actually, while we have here at the moment, we have two of Ireland's leading field guide authors with us. I just wanted to check how, how you guys actually, how you convey that in your writing in the well, field that's guides. that's not me and it's not Terry no, and it's, it's, it's not it's Richard. Eric and, Eric, it's Eric and Jim. Eric and Jim. So Jim, I might ask you first of all, if you don't mind, how do you go about trying to enthuse people or try to convince them in field guide terminology that waders are worth their attention okay well well uh uh, that that's the sixty four thousand dollar question niall Um, the the most important thing is to try and show the birds in in a way that that catches the eye catches the imagination um myself and my fellow in 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 crime uh mark carmody keep your head down i think there's a plane coming towards you there james it sounds like it's getting that's me that is me i have a helicopter flying right over me me here (laughs) They're definitely out to get me today. Anyway, <laughs> we've used photographs uh, in producing uh, our identification guide, and and it took a lot of cutting out and all that that practice when we were kids uh, on wet days with with old magazines. Cutting out things came in handy, uh, and we we arranged them like you would in a traditional plate. And and the whole idea then is with the text, you 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 try and distill down 
what are the key features? Because it is true when you start bird watching that you look at them and you go, oh my God, where the hell do I start? And therefore our job is to try and just get to the most important features as quickly as possible to help people that when they're going through the identification guidebook, that they can find their bird relatively quickly. But before you get to the, the images and that, there's a whole section at the start which, which people tend to skip over sometimes and is probably the most important part of the book, which is how do you describe what you see how do you take down your notes? Do you, you can do a little rough sketch, things like that. So field craft in, in, in one sense is probably more important than actually the identification guidebook itself. Because if you don't have a good description and you don't learn what to look for, by the time you fight, you go searching to the book, the bird is probably gone anyway. And then you, you start making, your brain tells you that the legs were actually red when they were green or the beak was curved when it was straight all sorts of things start happening so yeah in, in an identification guide I, I think it's a combination of getting across the information as to how to bird watch and then hopefully what we've produced in the plates of the images and the brief text of identification underneath that the combination of the three will allow them to learn more and more about the birds that they're looking at from my point of view, I, I fully agree with absolutely everything that Jim has just said. You've got to try and get over, you know, the essence of the bird, you know, how it feeds, what it what it behaves like, uh, as well as the plumage. But I, I will always say to people looking at waders who are intimidated, the great thing about waders is that you can compare them directly with each other. You know, if you're trying to look at a little warbler that's flitting around a bush, it's almost impossible to keep track of it. You go out to the Bull Island, you can look, you know, to the left. You say, well, that's a curlew. Look to your right, that's a god. But look to the right, that's a red. They're all feeding beside each other. So you can make direct comparisons. I always say with, with waders, it's half the battle is knowing what the bird isn't as opposed to what it is. So if you know your red shank and you come across a, a knot, for example, you say, well, this looks like a red shank, but hang on, the legs are different. It's a slightly dumpier bird. It's a bit smaller. Oh, it's a bit bigger than a dunlin because I can see there's a dunlin there and there's a red shank there. So it's between them two. And now you have your knot. So sometimes people are sort of intimidated by the fact that they're all brown, but forgetting that you can actually have them all in front of you, side by side, and you can tell one from the other directly. Unlike, you know, other little warblers that are flitting around or, you know, reed warblers and side warblers in a reed bed, you can barely see them. Uh, waders and gulls are the same. They, they will allow direct comparison. They also have a particular way of feeding. So, you know, as, as Jim says, like, you, you know, I always will try to, to get the, the, the plumage into the, the description of the field guides. And uh, we used illustrations by the wonderful artist Michael O'Cleary. But we also used things like how they feed. Sandaling run like little clockwork toys. Uh, you know, Dunlin are very, very sort of fast in how they feed. Other birds are very methodical in how they feed. So, you know, even how the bird moves, it's called the jizz of a bird. If you can try and capture a little bit of that, but that, that really does come from, um, from field experience as well. Can I also introduce something slightly controversial, Derek? I, I love, you know, me being a little bit controversial because we, we speak about some of these uh, waders are endangered in Ireland. Birds like snipe and woodcock, for example, are the numbers, their breeding numbers are plummeting. So I wonder, and I'm putting it out to all the, the panel there, is it time that we looked for a derogation on shooting waders in winter? Because birds like snipe, and woodcock, jack snipe, which is a smaller uh, winter visitor, birds like golden plover, these birds are an endangered breeding species in Ireland. And someone out shooting in winter can't differentiate between an Icelandic snipe or an Irish snipe. So would it be a good to su suggest maybe a 10-year derogation to try and allow the numbers increase? I'm just putting it out there. 
What do other people think? Well, this is your area of expertise, Niall, really, Birdwatch Ireland, and the NGO responsible for the conservation of birds in this country? We are, absolutely. And it is, it is a, a very difficult question, a very timely one, too, because, of course, birdwatchers and conservationists have an interest in having these birds still around, but so do hunters, of course. Hunters want to have a sustainable population of these birds so they can continue their pastime into the future. Now, that's a pastime that doesn't appeal to me personally, but I do recognise how hunting can be a force for conservation because it leads to things like wetland protection and so on. Everyone benefits from having big populations of these birds. I know that um, derogations and, and hunting bans or temporary bans are being looked at actually at European Union level at this stage too because it's something that, uh, that affects all of Europe. This is something that BirdLife International recently has, has developed a position paper on for the whole of Europe and Central Asia that certain species that are showing downward trends that there needs to be a, a halting to at least temporary halting to the hunting of these birds. I think also we need, uh, we need uh, many of the hunters in Ireland and the gun clubs who, who to be honest, many of them have done great work in monitoring these bird species. We know a lot about the populations of these birds from the bag returns sometimes that these clubs bring back to us. Uh, so that is an important part of it too. But I do think that the hunting organisation, it would be interesting to hear what their take on it would be too because I think we do need some responsibility here for making sure that these species do survive into the future because they are, they are at, a, at a crucial stage. It's important to recognise as well that the vast, vast majority of the species that are on the huntable list in Ireland, the quarry list, not just wetland birds but, but other birds too uh, that can be legally shot in Ireland, uh, many of those, the vast majority, are either red or amber listed in the Birds of Conservation Concern list in Ireland. So that means in the traffic light coded system of red, amber and green, green would mean that they're safe and secure for the time being. Amber is the next level of threats. We're talking threatened birds and then red would be highly threatened at risk of extinction. And there are too many species that are huntable in Ireland that are on that list in, in my opinion. So certainly this discussion needs to be had sooner rather than later and some measures I, I believe do need to be put in place to make sure that these birds will survive into the future so that the, the ecosystem will survive and be maintained and also hunters should have a vested interest here too because that of course means that their own pastime will be sustainable in the future as well. Well I'm sure they do and I'm sure many listen to this particular programme and they'll have views. They can email Mooney at rte.ie. Terry you're still there. Yes, yeah, I'm just listening to the conversation there. We haven't mentioned about habitat and maintenance of habitat because if we don't have the correct habitat, then we're not going to have the birds, irrespective of the shooting or whatever else. Now, if I go back to the Bull Island, I mentioned earlier that the Bull Island is composed of sand entirely. And this sand, you might say, but well, sand is very, very easy blow away. How is it managing to stay there? And the answer is because of two particular plants that are there. That's the couch grass and also, more importantly, the marum grass because the marum grass has a root system of something like five metres and this binds all the sand particles together. So when you look up at the dunes there and I know we're encouraged not to walk too much and not to disturb the dunes but we need to have that marum grass there. We need to have that there for the islands and then we have the mud flats in behind it and the important plants there would be the eel grass there as I mentioned earlier on for the for the Brent geese. So let's not forget about looking after the habitat. Now I know in the bull Island. At the height of the summer, you're getting something like 10,000 visitors per day. So that's a huge amount of footfall on the island. And I'd have to pay credit to the likes of Dublin City Council for the explanatory boards that they have up there, informing people as to what birds are present there. And also the walkways, the car parking facilities and the interpretive centre that's there. And it's not just that. You can go at the summertime and you're going to see different birds. You're going to see the birds of prey out there in the summertime. And I like nothing more in the summertime than the skylark. So I can't sell the Bull Island high enough because I think it's a wonderful resource. You can actually be driving by in the top of a double-decker bus and you can be going into town and you can be watching the Brent geese outside the window. So it's a fantastic place. But let's not forget about the habitat because I think the habitat is very important too. I think, Terry, one of the beauties of Bull Island as well is because there's such a human footfall there and there's traffic going by, that the birds there have become quite accustomed to human behaviour. So it means that you can actually get closer to them and observe them in a natural setting without them being disturbed or behaving unnaturally. So I think it's a, it's a great place for photographers to get lovely shots of these birds because they come that bit closer than they would in other parts of Ireland, literally because there's people around them all the time. So the Brent geese as well, in addition to the waders, they're a great example of that. You know, we, we talk about going on a wild goose chase as something that's, that's pointless because it's so difficult. 
not of the Bull Island, because those Brent geese are so used to people that you can actually get very close to them. So I like that very much. But also what you've touched on there with the habitat, that is very interesting because all of you today, you're diff- talking about different habitats subtly. So Jim talking about Cork Harbour, you Terry there talking about, about Bull Island and that area. And Eric, you there on the, the North Wicklow coast. It's quite different there, of course, because the North Wicklow coast is mainly shingle beaches. We don't have those kind of estuaries along there. So in, I'd be interested to hear, like, how, what do you think of the, the, the habitat change there? and How did that affect the different distribution of the wages that we get? Well, it's it's very interesting. You know, I've just uh, been down to the East Coast Nature Reserve, your wonderful reserve there at Newcastle. And depends on the water levels, for example, there. There was you know, hundreds and hundreds of um, black-tailed godwits, those red shanks, those lapwings. And over, because I, I walk that area constantly throughout the weeks uh, of winter. And you can see the numbers fluctuate according to the wetlands that we have there. And we're so lucky in that, you know, in, in the North Wicklow area, all the way from Wicklow town right the way up to uh, Kilcool, we have one big wetland reed beds and it's full and full of birds. The shingled as well is, is brilliant because... As you know yourself, you have your little terns nesting uh, on the shingle banks in summer. But because the shingle uh, is protected for the little terns, we have oyster catchers in there and we have ring plovers nesting in there. So the shingle banks provide very interesting breeding opportunities for birds like oyster catchers and ring plovers, which again are getting scarce as breeding birds. You know, I'm, I was born and bred going out to the Bull Island. So birding along the, the Wicklow coast is a, is a different experience because it's not tidal, you don't get the ebb and the flow of the tide coming in and out uh, along the North Wicklow coast, you might get that at broad luck. Uh, and then you, of course you have the, the, the wetlands uh, and the lakes of places like you know the Vartry Reservoir and you have Pool of Fuca and various places like that. So for people to enjoy waders, it isn't just about being on the coast, this is the key. You go to the Shannon estuaries there, you go to the, the wetlands around Banagher and like you have thousands and thousands and thousands of lap wings and golden plovers and godwits so you know we, we might get the impression that oh the bull island we need to be along the es- uh, an estuary or the coast go anywhere in the country during the winter you will you will be in the midlands you will have curlews you will have lapwings you will have all of these birds there our country is one of the best countries in winter for waders and wildfowl we have this lovely temperate damp wet dreary depressing sort of um, <laughs> weather but it's ideal for something. <laughs> um, it's fantastic I mean you know people give out about like oh the, the you know the rain in Ireland and the, the, how wet it is and how dull it is and how damp it is but it's that very weather that makes Ireland such a wonderful place in wintertime Jim I take it you concur with that uh, 100% this is the joy of bird watching or birding is that uh, as, as Eric rightly points out almost anywhere you go I mean we had a snipe in our suburban little garden here over Christmas uh, it's a wading bird <laughs> and here it was marching around on the lawn outside uh, so you never know where you're going to see them but be- because water and damp areas are never far away that is absolutely true that you're, you're going to find waders anywhere in Ireland but I must say one thing if you have a general interest in birds and want to get into looking at waders after listening to this program I would suggest you save up and buy yourself a little telescope Uh, you can get them now relatively cheap uh, far cheaper than a set of golf clubs you'd get one I think from Birdwatch Ireland for under 200 euro even a little small one but the, the beauty of that is it brings those birds which which can be relatively far away if you're only using binoculars but they bring them right up close to you so you can see the detail and the beauty in their feathers and the sh- as we mentioned the shapes of the beaks and the legs and their behaviour all those things it's like taking a set of blinkers off and finally seeing the whole picture so I, I would strongly urge you to to go and see if you can get yourself a telescope. You can buy them new. Sometimes you can get them secondhand. For for wader watching out on an estuary or out on a wet a wetland anywhere in Ireland, it will just increase your your enjoyment and satisfaction of of watching them a hundredfold. Yeah, and you can also keep an eye on the neighbours as Richard does with his, don't you, Richard? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I, I do and watch the neighbours all the time. I, I nearly know their names by now, Derek. But anyway. Jim, 
Eric, Richard and Terry, thank you very much indeed. Niall, you want to make a closing statement? <laughs> Look, it's so wonderful to be able to devote a whole programme, a whole hour of radio to these wonderful birds that I think are one of Ireland's best kept secrets. How lucky we are in this country to have so many of these remarkable birds literally on our doorstep. We, we're the envy of bird watchers around the world, how accessible these birds are, how special they are. The greatest travellers in, in, the, in the whole animal kingdom, many of them. Get out there and enjoy them. And, you know, if people can't put names to them, that's not the main thing. Just enjoy the spectacle, enjoy the sights, yeah. enjoy the sound and realise how blessed we are to have It's them. the atmosphere as well. As I said to you, evening time for me is the best time to watch waders. Well, it's actually the best time to listen to waders. You just soak up that atmosphere. And it doesn't matter what the weather is like, if it's blustery or if it's raining or whatever the case may be. It's just so pleasurable if you have a flask with you, a cup of tea, a hot chocolate, whatever takes your fancy. It's nothing better. Anyway, Niall, thank you very much indeed. Once again, Happy New Year to all of our listeners. And you can get a second helping of Mooney Goes Wild tomorrow night. Terry Flanagan's documentary, All About Migration. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.